That is a sermon trailer teaser. You're like, wait, that's not like the normal trailer, right? Uh, we'll have a more normal one next week. That was our, uh, our, our truncated one this week. We're going to start out by shouting, uh, what do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we like to say? I love God and I love you. I hope you like to say that. We've just said that so many times at this church. Now we're going on. This is our third year we've been saying that sort of phrase back and forth. And I love it because I hear now like when people are praising, like uh, even praying like for you know, different events or something, they'll, that, that phrase will start to show up in their prayers and like, they'll be like, you know, God, we're trying to love you and love others. Like, so I hear it all the time. And uh, I, every time I see other churches use any phraseology like that, I'm like, oh, stealers, stop stealing our thing, you know. And so like, uh, it's really becoming part of our church. Love it. Glad you guys are here this morning. Um, we are going to begin a new verse-by-verse expositional teaching through the book of Colossians. So expositional just means verse-by-verse and and we try to do this kind of style of sermon series about a quarter of our time. So this is just a peek behind like why we do that or, or how our sermon series are set up. Um, about a quarter of the time, we, we do uh, more focused on a teaching passage uh, verse by verse. And this is intentional. Uh, teaching is really important in the Bible. Uh, teaching is where we're informing someone's mind. Now, I don't think that's the primary point of service is why we only do it 25% of the time. Because normally we do what's called preaching. And in the Bible, there's two different gifts. Teaching is informing the mind. And preaching is moving the heart. And the difference is the heart is the command center of a human being. The heart is the place where, now we use it as the emotional center, but not, that's not how it's used in the Bible. In the Bible, the heart is the place where it takes your emotions, it takes your intellect, it takes your reason, it takes your mind, and it makes decisions. So we would say like the center self or the command center of you is your heart. And preaching's goal is to move your heart, to cause God to stir inside of you so there's a movement taking all these different aspects and causing a movement. So there's a slightly different focus in teaching versus preaching. And so we do preaching about 75% of the time, and about 25% of the time it's teaching. Now in all teaching aspects, when you're teaching the Bible, there's an element of preaching. God is moving hearts anytime we open the Bible and we read it. And in preaching, there has to be elements of teaching the Bible. It's just how is the focus a little bit different. And one isn't more biblical than the other. Sometimes you might have seen this like online or people say like, oh, we go verse by verse. That's more biblical. It's only more biblical if you teach the Bible correctly. We could go verse by verse and teach it all wrong, and that would actually be worse biblically. And we can teach something like uh, God's goodness, and we could do it topically, and you could do that wrong also, or you could do it right. So good biblical teaching is just biblical, and it doesn't matter which format it comes in, whether it's teaching or preaching, which are slightly different things. And so we like to do a little bit, bit of both of those. So that's a peek behind like how we sort of navigate the church. And so last time we did, went through Mark, the time before that we went through Philippians and we've been through 1 John and you're like, we did? I don't remember any of those things. Uh, so I actually didn't either. So I went back and looked at some of the ser- series video. The 1 John was the one where we, they had the Frodo thing, remember? <laughs> the Fellowship of 1 John. So if you remember that video, then, uh, then you're like, oh yeah, okay, we did do 1 John. I remember that video. And so here we go. We're going to begin a series here in Colossians. Colossians is written by Paul. It's written in 60 AD. This is about 30 years after Jesus has, uh, was uh, dead and resurrected. And Paul is writing from prison. He goes to prison a couple of times. Uh, so this is one of the times that he's in prison in Rome. And he writes this one uh, and sends this letter to the, the same time he sent the letter of Philemon and the letter of Ephesians. So he was writing them, and then he sent them out to these different churches from this place of prison. 
Uh, and uh, he writes this church, Colossae, the, the city is Colossae, so Colossians. So he writes this church because they were having a particular problem. They, there, there were some heresies that had started to come into the church. Now, the church is only 30 years old, so there's not a long history of churches, right? They don't have a long history of theology and this kind of stuff. And so they were kind of figuring it out at the time. And so Paul had to write them to say, like, hey, you guys have got a, little, a couple of problems. And sometimes if you read any theological books, this is called the, the Colossian heresy that they were dealing with. And, and uh, what that was is there were elements of Jewish people trying to make it more Jewish, like more rules. And there was also a group that said, like, oh, there's things that you can't know unless you have this spiritual experience, and it's secrets of God, and only we know those secrets. So these people were coming in there, and there's a little bit of uh, a dash of wrong uh, Christ teaching and a touch of world philosophies coming in. And so, like, the poor Colossians were having, like, getting pulled all over the place, and so Paul decides to write them. We, we'll, we'll see those, the uh, indication of those heresies when we get into chapter 2 where Paul deals with that. Now, whatever the problem was precisely, Paul said, here's the solution for the problem. The solution for your problem and for all problems of heresy is to teach about the truth of Christ. See, knowing the real Jesus helps us to stay away from the counterfeit Jesus, no matter how it's packaged. It doesn't matter if it's in Colossians. It doesn't matter if it's in Fullerton, Irvine, or, or, or Tustin, or Santa Ana. It doesn't matter where the heresy is or how it's packaged. The answer to that is to focus on the truth of Christ. And so that's our central theme for the book of Colossians is the truth of Christ. So uh, if I was going to come up with a theme statement for the book, it would say something like this. If I was, of course I did, right? The truth of Christ is the gospel. That truth dispels the lies of the world and it, and it uh, reshapes how we navigate this life. So that's the overall what Colossians is going to look like. And you know you're in a teaching setting when something like this shows up. And then the teacher says, okay, here's what that outline looks like. Here's a bird's eye view of that book. Do we have that slide? Chapter 1 is the truth of Christ, also known as the gospel. Chapter 2 is the hindrances of that truth of Christ. And 3 through 4, we'll be talking about living out the truth of Christ. So that's, the, that's how, the, if you read Colossians, that's what you're facing. There's a, he's talking about Jesus in the first part. And then he's talking about, like, hey, here's your, some of your guys' problems or these, like, huge problems. And then and here's how the truth of Christ in uh reflects in and shapes how, how we're going to live out our lives. And so uh, whenever you see that, you know that you're in a teaching heavy side of a, of a sermon rather than just a preaching. You know, preaching you'll see some fun meme or something, and in teaching you see outline like that. So <clears throat> we're in the outline. Now, okay, now to the good stuff. That, that's sort of the background stuff I think is important to, to lay the groundwork for where we're going in the next seven weeks. Uh, but the good part is really the Bible. So we're into the Bible. Here's Colossians chapter 1 where Paul writes. He goes, Paul, an apostle of Christ... Uh, Jesus, by the will of God, and, and uh, Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So this is a pretty standard Pauline greeting. He, he writes this uh, all the times he writes the letters. It sounds almost identical. Uh, here he's saying, I'm writing to you the faithful persons that are in Colossae, and we're going to see that many of them have many of the same problems that we have. And so it's funny, 2,000 years later, issues that their church is facing is the same kind of issues that we face nowadays. Now, not a direct, direct war correlation. They don't have the Internet. Uh, we do. You know, they don't have cars or planes or all sorts of different things. But some of the core problems are always the same core problems. That's kind of how people have been since the beginning. Core problems are the core problems. So he says, I'm an apostle. The literal meaning of apostle is uh, a messenger who is sent out. And when they see it in the New Testament, it has a deeper level of sort of meaning, an authorized spokesman of God. So it's not just anyone sent out to say anything. 
An apostle, as they use in the New Testament, is someone who has been ordained by God to go and say, this is what God wants you to know. Here's the truth. So that's how it gets like recorded in the Bible. So nowadays we don't really call people apostles because we don't think they speak on behalf of God, perhaps unless you come from a Catholic tradition and you, you think the Pope is still speaking on behalf of God, then he would probably, if, if you thought that that was true, he would be a modern-day apostle probably. But, but other than that, it has a really specific meaning in the New Testament where people are called specifically by God to go tell about this new thing that he's doing, the truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, right? And so here we go on. He says, we always thank God for you guys, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, and the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. And so he says, I'm praying with you. And every time I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you with thanks in my heart. He said, I'm so proud of the faith in Jesus that you have and the love that you have for people, especially knowing that you do it out of the hope that you have in this greater thing, that, that you've learned to put your trust and salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. We call that the gospel, right? And he says, I'm so thankful for that in your guys' life. So this letter full of love and concern written to the church that Paul had neither visited nor planted. Sometimes we think Paul was all over the place, but this church in Colossae, he's never even met these people. Now he met the guy who went and evangelized them. Epaphras was sent to them. So he, he sent the guy who evangelized them, but he's never been in this city. He's, he didn't go there personally. He didn't speak at their church. He doesn't know them by name. Uh, he's not even Facebook friends with them. There's no Facebook, right? And so, so he's never met these people, and yet he's writing this kind of thing. I'm praying for you always. Why am I praying? Because I know you have the hope of the gospel in you. Paul didn't need to see or meet them or, or directly know them in order to love them and be concerned for them. And this is a really cool part about Christianity. In 2006, I decided to sponsor a boy in the Philippines uh, through Compassion International. And so in addition to writing him regularly, I committed to pray for him. So I've pr prayed for him almost daily. I can't say daily because sometimes I probably forgot. And so uh, this 2006, it's almost 16 years that I've been praying. I, I write him pre pretty regularly. I pray for him. Uh, I guess probably about 350 days of the year. There's 365. I gave myself 15, uh, you know, mistakes where I didn't. And I sort of calculated that, put that in my calculator. And I was thinking about it. That was, that was calculating to 5,400 separate individual prayer times for this kid that I've never met. I'm not a kid now. He's like 22. But he was six when I first met him. But I've never met him. More than 5,000 times I've prayed for him by name. And I tell you, I love him, and I've never met him. <laughs> and I care deeply about him, even though I've never seen him face to face. And that's this really cool thing about Christianity. Many of you, three years ago, we asked you to pray for a, a kid in Thailand, and you picked their picture off there, and, and you've been praying for them regularly, and you've never met them. And you don't know what's going on in their life, but you're connected to them. And they matter to you, even though you've never met them. Our church has generously given money to Thailand. Our, our church has generously been giving mo money to a missionary that's in Canada, our Allsback family that's there. Our family's been generously giving money to uh, the Kang family in their undisclosed location, currently Alaska. But, you know, they're in a, other than that, they're in their regular 
terrifying destination. And think about all those places. We're not, I've never been to Canada. I've never seen what the Allsbacks are doing. I've never went to where the Kang family is doing ministry. Most of you have never been to Thailand. And yet you give and you pray and you care. And that is exactly how excited Paul is for that. that that's your same heart. You, at this point, that makes you Paul in this story. You're the one saying, like, I'm praying for these people even though I never met them. I care about them and they matter to me even though I haven't physically seen them and I'm not even getting any benefit from them. I just love them because they're followers of Jesus because they have this truth of Christ. He was always given thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus. We see it here. He was given it for the love of the saints. And I would say that genuine faith in Jesus always has true love as a component. If you have Genuine faith for Jesus, you will always have love for the saints. They're not separable. And then he says, I have this thankful hope for you that's in heaven. And, and I was looking back at that and pull that verse up really fast. And you glance at it again. I see faith. I see hope. I see love. You know that faith, hope, love, those show up an awful lot. Like those three are in, in multiple passages, not this one, this faith, hope, love idea. And so anytime they show up a lot of different places in the Bible, it's something that we want to take note of. And, and maybe take an internal, uh, internal uh, check really fast to you know, uh, update in ourselves and say, how am I doing with my faith, my hope, my love? Has my, my faith in God, has it started to inform how I love the saints? Has, has my faith in God really given me a hope so I don't get discouraged no matter what happens in the world, even if it's bad stuff this week? You turn on the, the news, it's always bad stuff. But does my faith in Christ elevate so that my hope is in his kingdom, not in this world and the things that are going on in this world? And he says that he was thankful for the true message of the gospel. And that's our series, The Truth of Christ. The gospel is the truth of Christ. It's the foundation and the beginning of faith, and it leads to the, the rejection of all sorts of evils and the transformation of godliness. That's what we're talking about in the book of Colossians. And that that truth of Christ cannot be underestimated. Paul moves on to say this, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So Christ continued to be exalted and the numbers of Christians was growing. So this is only 30 years since Jesus dies and resurrected. And now the Christian message has already spread almost to the furthest ends of the Roman Empire and beyond. Just in 30 years. And, and they didn't have modern ways to, to get information out. This is like walked, mouth to, word, uh, word of mouth, person to person. The gospel has just spread all throughout the known Roman world at this point within 30 years. And that extends to even today. I know sometimes in, if, if you read... Anytime I see religious articles, I always click on them. That's sort of my job, right? And anytime I see religious articles in America, it's always, the church is dying. The, you know, Christianity is decreased. And Christianity may feel that way, but you've got to step out of just American because Christianity isn't just American. And you've got, you'll notice if you step out of that that the church is not shrinking. The church is, in fact, growing all throughout the world. Now, it may, may not look exactly like our Western Christianity, but it is growing all throughout this planet. And, and so... The, the same hope that Paul has, he's excited about the growth uh, of Christianity, and he's mentioned it here, that's happening even today. And we right now at this time, we have the greatest opportunity to evangelize in the world. There, have been, there has never been more people on the planet than there currently is. That means there's more people who need to hear about Jesus. And we have more technology. We have more translation helps. I mean, heck, your phone has a voice-to-voice -voice translator 
for almost any language. On the planet. It's over, over 200 languages you can download on your phone and have voice-to-voice -voice translation. We have more accessibility to the lost than we've ever had in human history. And there's more lost than there's ever been. And so what an amazing opportunity. What will we do with the opportunity to evangelize in our lifetimes? Will we seize those opportunities or will we let them pass them by? I pray that we continually jump at every opportunity we have to share the gospel. Uh, Paul was excited for this church, and I pray that uh, any opportunity that we get to do that, whether it's here, whether it's in your work, whether it's in your family, whether it's foreign or abroad or any place in this world where you get a chance to partake in the sharing of the gospel, jump at it. And I say go for it in all situations. Paul's talking about the gospel, and then he, say, he says this, you learned it from Epaphras. They didn't learn it from Paul. Our dear uh, fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is a really cool picture of how Christianity and, and like community work. So he said, we sent Epaphras to you. He told you about the gospel. You guys became faithful. You, you, you've had this faith, hope, love, this kind of stuff. You, and you're growing, and then you're sharing. And then he came back to us, and he told us. And he's like, dude, they're growing, and they're sharing, and loving it. And Paul's like, dude, no, I'm growing, and I'm sharing, and I'm loving it. I'm so excited. And then they, he's going to take a letter back to them. And he said, they, he's, Paul's going to tell them, Paul, Paul's so excited about you guys. And they're going to be like, Paul's excited about us. Oh, they're going to even get more excited. That's how it works. Like Christianity is this like cool thing where it's, where it's us and God and it's us and God, but it's also us and other people. And, and we need them and we got to be around them. We got to get encouraged by them. And then we get encouragement from God. We give it to them. They give it back to us and we get re-encouraged. It's this sort of messy sort of interconnectedness that, that was always meant to be. And we see it right here. Paul's like, I'm praying for you. I never met you, but I'm praying for you. But I heard about you because I sent word. You came Christians. Then it came back to me. And I was re-blessed by you, and then he's going to send them this letter, and they're going to be blessed by him again. And it's going to have this sort of mutual benefit, a, a connection, even though they've never met, that glorifies God, that connects them to one another, and creates genuine love for someone else, even though he doesn't see him face to face. He says, man, for all this stuff, in Colossians 1, 9, for all these reasons, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. I mean, this is a hallmark of Paul's life and ministry. He's pretty busy. He's writing books of the Bible and stuff, right? He's walking and planting hundreds of churches. And he, he, doesn't, he, he has to walk there place to place. And one of the hallmarks of his life and ministry is prayer. He says it all the time. His life is marked by praying for people. As believers, there may be no better way for us to bless other people than to pray for them. My prayer should be our first passion even before helping or talking or doing, prayer is essential. That's easy to say. My wife and I, uh, Hedgen, we were having a conversation about our kid. Uh, so I actually uh, am able to talk to occasionally on this uh, on Facebook app to the kid that I've sponsored's mom. But my wife never has any interaction at all with the kid she's been sponsoring for the last three years in prayer. And so uh, we were talking about like, man, like we're praying for the kid. We pray for them every single day. We pray for them together every day. We pray for them individually. Uh, and then we're talking about like praying for the Thailand kids. And, and then we're talking about like, but I wish we could, like, I wish we could actually do something for them, you know? I wish we could actually help them. And, and we're, we're worried about like, man, if we were there, we could maybe protect them from evil. We could like help guard them against sex, sexual trafficking or, or predators or poverty or all this kind of stuff. And, and we're like, man, I wish we could actually do something. And it's sort of as we thought 
sat in that thought, uh, do you hear what I'm saying when I say that? And maybe you resonate with that. But do you hear what the, the base behind that is? The base behind that is prayer is not actually helping. The thought behind that, that thing we're talking about is, is uh, praying for the Thailand kids versus actually helping the Thailand kids. And so as a Christian, I have to say, of course, you know, prayer is really important, and I'm a pastor, so it's like, it's even more important, right? But do I really believe it? Because that's not how we were talking. And that's an honest conversation between my wife and I. We were talking about, like, I wish I could, we could actually help them. And we're using that word actually after we had just prayed for them. And man, have I got it backwards. Do you think that me being there with them is better for them than God being there with them? Do I think that I can somehow provide for them better than God can provide for them? If I were there, could I protect them better than God could protect them? If I were there, could I hold back darkness better than God could hold back darkness? And the answer is unequivocally no, but the answer in my heart is, yeah, I think I can. Oh, that's so messed up and so true, and I'm sorry, God, that feels that way. And I want to tell you guys, it's not that way. So I've got to let my knowledge of God, my information about God, kick out how sometimes I feel. And so I know that praying for these kids is more important than if I were there full time. God's a better dad to anyone than I could ever be. God is a better example to them than I could be. I'd be there sweating and pissed off because I get too hot. You know, like I'll be screaming at the kids after a week if if I had to see them a whole week. God's never screaming at them and God's never pissed off at them. God's always loving them. Praying is doing something. And it's the most doing something you can do. And so next time you're tempted like me to say like, oh, I wish I could actually do something. Well, you can actually do something, and you can actually do the most important thing, and that's to pray for someone, whether it's your family member, whether it's a a foreign person, whether it's the gospel going out, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's worries in your own communities, whatever it is. You can actually do something, and the most powerful actually doing is to pray for that thing. Now, praying doesn't mean that I don't stop also helping in other ways, but I got to know those other ways are here, and the praying is here. You see, praying is the meal, not the garnish. But I think I get it backwards, and I think my doing is the meal, and the prayer is just the add-on part. The prayer isn't the spice to the meal. The prayer is the meal, and me helping is adding too much salt to the meal. It's like messing it up. You guys, like, get out of the way. Just pray. And we get to this uh, next sentence. This is all one sentence in Colossians. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and you could please him in every way by bearing fruit in every good work, by growing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might so that you might have great endurance with patience and giving thanks Uh, Joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Wow, that is one sentence. (laughs) That is 
I'll tell you, that's about six sermons right there. About uh, We're going verse by verse. We've got to do a bunch of them. So, but that's like six sermons all in that one sentence, incredibly dense. Paul reveals the, the nature and the content of one of his main prayers. He says, here's what I'm praying for you. And he sort of lifts it out. You'll see it by the, the ING endings. He says, these are these four things that I'm praying for you. He said, first, I, I pray that you'd have knowledge of God's will. That's the first thing I'm praying for informed by true spiritual understanding. To know God and what he requires of us is the first responsibility. You see, I mentioned earlier about my prayer thing. See, when my, when my feelings contradicted what I know about God, guess which one's true? <laughs> my knowledge of God. And so the knowledge of God is incredibly important. If you read this epistle through, you'll observe that like uh, Paul frequently alludes to knowledge and wisdom as you're interacting as a believer he would not have ignorant believers. He knew that spiritual ignorance would be a constant source of error, instability, and sorrow, and therefore he desired people to grow in the knowledge of God, to fend off the counterfeit gospels that we're going to see. See, the truth of Christ helps us battle all the untruths about Christ. The truth of prayer helps me battle all the untruths of prayer. The truth of who I am in Jesus helps me battle all the lies of Satan telling who I am not in Jesus and how much of a failure I am. See, the truth always helps dispel heresy or lies. Second thing Paul was praying for, that they would live according to the same knowledge that they have. So he says, I pray that you'd have knowledge, but it wouldn't just stay in your knowledge. He said, I'm praying that you'd actually live it out to walk a life worthy of the knowledge that you're receiving in your head. So not just learn right, but live right. One of my great worries is as a pastor of incredibly intelligent people. Now, our church is educated. We are educated past the educated folks. Our church is extremely educated. You are incredibly smart. And I worry as your pastor sometimes that we'll have a church of humongous heads and tiny hands. That's my worry. Uh, this is my genuine worry. That we'll have big heads and small hands. But God wants us to have big heads and big hands. I pray for our church that we would have that, that we would not only know, but we would live right, that we'd have both of them, that we'd know right and we'd live right. So our knowledge must lead to living a worthy life, a pleasing life in God's eyes. And he says, here's four of the ways you could do it. He says, by bearing fruit, by growing, by being strengthened, and by giving thanks. Bearing fruit in every good work, he said, in that statement, there's room and range enough for all of your life situations. In every good work, have the ability to preach the gospel, then, then preach it. Does a little kid need comforting? Then comfort him. Could you stand up and share apologetics through your social media? Then do it. Does a poor believer need a little bit of financial help? Then help her. Does someone at work need a word of encouragement? Then encourage them. So let works of obedience and evangelism and zeal and, and generosity and care be found in, in all of our lives. Don't just consider like, I just need these big things. I'm going to do these big things for you, God. But glorify God also in the littles. You see, be fruitful in every good work. Not just, oh, this one time I'm going to go to summer missions. That's going to be my good work. <laughs> And then I'm not going to do any good works until uh, another opportunity in three years arises because I'm not going to do it for two years. You know? And only for a big opportunity, you have an everyday opportunity to do everyday good work. And then he says, growing in knowledge of God. And I, 
I mentioned the importance of that already, so we're not going to spend too much time there. Then he says, being strengthened by God's power, this is the third one, for endurance and patience as we walk worthy of the Lord. Why endurance and patience? Because endurance and patience help us navigate all the circumstances of our life. See, endurance is like with situations, with circumstances. We need endurance to get through it, to, to trust God and to have strength in it. And patience is with people. We need to, patience to endure the people, to deal with them, and to be patient, and to care about them. So when he says, I, I want you to be strengthened by God's power and endurance and patience, he's talking about, may God give you strength in the situations of your life, whether they're situational or they're relational. Endurance for situations and patience for relations. And he's praying that for the, the folks. And he says the last thing he was praying for those, that they would be giving joyful thanks, that all these things are possible through Jesus. And he said that's how we can live this kind of full, pleasing, godly life. How we can walk worthy is by doing these things, by hearing these truths and then putting them in our lives. And so our last part for today is this. He says, for he, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness or the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christians have been rescued from Satan's domain. This idea has, the, th this word has the idea of a sovereign power coming in and you can't help it yourself, but he comes and he saves you. A sovereign power comes and rescues you. Again, back to the gospel, redemption speaks of a legal ransom. The price of your release was paid for by the blood of Jesus. This is one of the reasons why pleading the blood of Jesus in the right sense, not in a magical or like a superstitious sense, but saying like, because of the blood of Jesus, I can pray these prayers and they have power. Because of the blood of Jesus, because you are freed from sin, you aren't a sinner squawking at an enemy God because of the blood of Jesus, you are a son of God asking your father for something that he wants to do already. That he wants to care and be there and, and love and, and pour in and overwhelm people. And, and as a believer, I am freed from my sin by Jesus to walk in to the home of my father and say, Dad, what are we doing? How can we help these kids over here? God, how can we bless our family member this way? How do you want to do this, God? It shows that we have a receipt of our lawful purchase as redeemed persons. That's what the blood of Christ does. Anytime the enemy says you don't belong, you're not paid for, something's wrong with you, you grab out that receipt and say, nope, paid for. Got it. I am paid for by the blood of Jesus. So you face spiritual battles in your life. You face issues in your life. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. You face it not as someone who cannot overcome, but someone who has already overcome because Jesus has overcome for us. Whatever situation you face, it doesn't matter if it's school or family or work or health or economic or whatever it is. You face it as a redeemed, rescued person, freed from the darkness, complete forgiveness of your sin. The, 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 the word translated uh, for forgiveness is, is like, if you could take a baseball and you could hit it, and it would go forever away. That's what that idea is. It's, it, it says literally is ascending away, never to return. That's what that forgiveness is. God took your sin and he baseball batted that with his infinite power in your sin. 
was rocketed away, never to return to you. That's what he, it's not coming back. Once you confess that sin, if you feel guilty for it, that's not God bringing the guilt. Once you've confessed it and he forgave you, that's the enemy of yourself bringing it back. God's like, what are you talking about? I home run that thing. I, I otani that guy, you know, like I hit that out of the park. That has been sent away from you. It is not part of who you are. How freeing is that? To know that and experience that my mistakes and my sins and, and my darkness and my regrets have been sent away. Anyone else? Ha- I have some regrets. I have some darknesses. I have some sins that I've done. Anyone else have any of those? No? Just one guy. I'm always confessing, man. Well, I'll tell you what it's like <laughs> to know that that's been f- sent away from me. It's freeing. I'm no longer weighed down by this enormous weight of sin or regret or stupidity. Like, uh, if you've ever seen those junior hires walking around with their backpacks, <laughs> like huge, full backpacks of all their books because they're scared to go to their locker for some reason. And God says, let me take that backpack and let me hit that out of there. So you are forgiven. And that's free. And it frees me to to look and say, okay, how can I do these things? How can I walk in this truth of Christ? See, the truth of Christ, the gospel, is the bedrock from which our prayers spring. I'm going to read this because I thought it was cool how I wrote it. It's the fertile soil from whence our souls blossom. It's the source of strength to lift our worries of this world. See, the truth of Christ powers our prayers, trusting Him not only for ourselves but for those that we love. The truth of Christ allows us to confidently put our hope in, in the God whose kingdom was brought about through his provision. Look, we stand not because we're really good. And we stand and we're able to follow these things and pray and have power, not because I have some ability to do that, but rather because of Christ and the truth of Christ. And so it's the truth of Christ which we stand. And I'm going to ask that we would just stand together. Would you do that with me? Just let the truth of Christ inform you right now. Wherever you're at, hear that your sins have been sent away if you just come to Jesus. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. Hear that your prayers matter. And they're the most important thing you could do because of the truth of Christ. Hear that you can live a life worthy of the gospel because of the truth of Christ. Would you just receive that? And then we're going to respond in song.